Welcome to Podcasting Social Work. Podcasting Social Work is a platform for educators, learners, social workers to share your stories, knowledge, skills, and empower communities and transform lives. My name is Hassan. I'm the host of Podcasting Social Work. Today, we are so happy to have Dr. Valerie Boram as the guest who will be sharing her perspective on anti-racism and how as social worker and community worker, we can adopt anti-racist approach in our work. How are you, Dr. Boram? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for asking, Dr. Hassan. Thank you once again. Dr. Valerie Boram is the director and professor of School of Social Work, Toronto Metropolitan University. Dr. Boram is a passionate educator, researcher, and advocate. Some of her expertise is in the role of ethnoculture as a promotive and protective factor in health, mental health and disability, anti-racism, and the implications of whiteness, black feminism, Afrocentric research and scholarship. And there are so on so much, but today we are going to discuss on anti-racism. Dr. Boram, how would you like to define anti-racism as a framework? As a framework, um, anti-racism is is sort of like it's the the policy or the practice of opposing racism. So as a framework, anti-racism would be incorporated and would direct us in terms of policy making, uh, in terms of uh, uh, practice, uh, it's a means of countering uh, racial prejudice, uh, systemic racism, and particularly looking at um, uh, the oppression of particular groups, and I would say particularly racialized groups. Um, Anti-racism as a, a framework and as an approach um, is considered to be sort of an active and conscious effort uh, to work against multi-dimensional aspects of racism, um, as noted by Robert Patterson, uh, professor of African-American studies at Georgetown University. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for defining anti-racist approach in a nutshell. And now I would like to know, usually our community members, our students, learners would like to know, what are the roots of racism? You know, that's a very interesting question because I, I, I think for some um, scholars, you know, um, educators, um, students, uh, learners would look at racism as an act. Um, and I tend to look at racism as an outcome. Wonderful to know. Thank you. As an outcome of an ideology because I know we look at sort of racism and we can talk about the impacts of racism, we can talk about discrimination, um, but I would say that this is based in an ideology of white supremacy. Uh, and white supremacy is, is based in a belief um, that those who, um, who at one point were, uh, Europeans, you know, they at one point they were Scottish, they were, you know, amongst themselves, but then in relation to uh, non-Europeans uh, and 
then sort of became what we call now white. And that gets into this notion of whiteness. And so then whiteness then was used as a means of categorizing people, uh, particularly of European descent, and who would, you know, at one point were not white, but became white. And these then peoples were then considered superior. Right. And because they were considered superior, that they had a right to dominate society and all other groups. Um, and, and typically, again, it was to the exclusion and detriment uh, of other racial and ethnic groups who were not deemed white. Um, and in this process of um, institutionalizing and socializing, um, peoples to, to internalize this belief, um, scientific racism was also used. I mean, I, it seems like an oxymoron, but science, what we consider to be evidence, what we consider to be factual, um, was actually used to, to, to sort of verify or confirm these notions of white supremacy. So scientific racism played a, a really big uh, part in, in supporting, for example, the enslavement of Africans, uh, of genocide, and this is throughout the globe, uh, the theft of indigenous lands. And so within this ideology, there is an uh, assumption of a hierarchy so that groups based on, and this again, this, this ideology is also connected to biology, right? So that whites are biologically, and not just in biological aspects, but because of their biology, because of the difference in melanin, that they are naturally and intrinsically and inherently superior. Uh, and so there's a hierarchy with, you know, and we have to also understand why whiteness is also um, sort of, it, it counters blackness because within the, the, how can I say, within the Western um, sort of uh, uh, worldview uh, in terms of the cosmology, like how do you see the world? Um, it, it's based in, in dualisms. So it's either or, it's black or white, it's good or bad, right? Whereas other cultural groups, it's not based in these dichotomies. It's like, for example, looking at Afrocentric um, or womanist or black feminism, it's based in not so much either or, but it's both and. So I'm not either black or a woman, I'm both black woman and. So because of this, blackness has been used in such a way that it becomes then the negative opposite of the dualisms, right? So this notion in, in some ways rests on anti-blackness. And then it begins to look at how other groups are, where do other groups fall in this hierarchy? So the closer to whiteness, closer to blackness. And this is why I think rooting out anti-blackness is um, 
essential to looking at um, an anti-racist um, uh, approach to um, dismantling racism and notions of white supremacy. And I'm so grateful that the way you uh, coined it, uh, racism is an outcome and what is the source of uh, racism and it is embedded in colonialism. It is uh, it is uh, within the whiteness and how it is actually uh, actually uh, impacting our communities. Uh, and in this regard, I would like to learn a little bit about that how racism is impacting our racialized, our black and our indigenous communities. Uh, in this context, I would like to hear something from you. Yes, and see, and, and this is, this is um, because racism, you know, it impacts greatly BIPOC people. Um, it also in some ways impact whites, right? Because if there is a notion of superiority relative to members of your human family, it takes away from your ability to be human. And it has real impacts on BIPOC people, for example, experiencing um, implicit bias, you know, prejudice, uh, you know, the cultural perspectives of, you know, unfair dominance, right? Uh, so these cultural perspectives are in place to somehow support the unfair dominance that um, uh, is exerted by members who are of a group that can exert dominance. Um, it impacts uh, uh, BIPOC people in terms of discrimination, uh, where there is a favor, favor um, there, where whiteness is favored. Um, it also has the marginalizing effects. Like I tend not to identify BIPOC people as marginalized. However, racism incorporates or uh, entails marginalizing those who are deemed different or other otherizing BIPOC people. There's a lot of um, uh, privilege that is granted to one particular group and not others. For example, it shouldn't be a privilege to breathe. It shouldn't be a privilege to walk down the street. It shouldn't be a privilege to drive, right? It sh these are not privileges. They should be uh, experienced by all of humanity. And there are some major um, impacts of racism on uh, communities um, of color or BIPOC communities um, because it can impact uh, different communities uh, in, in terms of, um, I would say, how, how about if we say physically, uh, health-wise. Um, you know, when we look at BIPOC people and having to deal with the, uh, the experiences of marginalization, discrimination, uh, microaggressions, uh, exclusion to, to, to healthcare. I mean, this can impact uh, BIPOC people physically in terms of, you know, hypertension, which can lead to heart disease, uh, having a, a weaker uh, immune system. Um, and, and, and sometimes when you're experiencing this, you might find that there's some other things going on in terms of body aches, um, 
you know, headaches. Uh, um, and it also impacts uh, by uh, BIPOC people uh, mentally in terms of depression, anxiety, um, post-traumatic uh, stress, uh, you know, lower self-esteem. Um, so there are many areas like in employment, uh, health, uh, education, uh, it impacts uh, uh, representation uh, amongst, you know, the government. Um, it, it impacts every aspect, I would say, of BIPOC life. So it impacts life chances, you know, uh, and it's really embedded in all of our institutions. So wherever we sort of try to navigate or whatever um, institution we um, sort of engage, uh, we're having this experience of, okay. of racism. I can relate some of the uh, points that you have mentioned that uh, as a newcomer, when I came to this uh, country, Canada, and um, I, whenever I went to um, apply for a job, even uh, to explore job opportunities, uh, I was told uh, whether you have Canadian experience, Canadian experience, whether you started in Canada. So I was just, uh, I didn't uh, knew, about, I didn't know about this when um, I was immigrating to Canada, but when I arrived here, I come to know that yes, there are some institutional uh, system, not written policy, but it is practiced very much uh, uh, in, uh, in 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 especially in hiring, in also in workplaces. So um, I navigated through, and I also found people from my own community. They internalize this kind of uh, systemic racism, and they say that um, you can't succeed in this community. Uh, in this system it's um so you go back you go back home you can you had a good job with an international organization you go back and so this is one story i remember and also when i was living in a, a very racialized neighborhood in a downtown uh, neighborhood and i witnessed that um how racism functions and how the builders and how the powerful stakeholders are driving out uh, BIPOC community, Black, Indigenous, and people of color uh, from a, a neighborhood that is located at the heart of the city of Toronto and uh, trying to gain control uh, for rich who can uh, buy um, apartments with um, by spending so much money and, and uh, this process also reducing the number of social housing units um, in, a, uh, in, a, in a neighborhood that is uh, located at the heart of the city of Toronto. So I can see that um, how racism is functioning and uh, also how it is impacting community at large. Even there are some stereotypes about some Scarborough community in downtown communities. Oh, uh, racialized people are living here and so this is uh, like some sort of racial profiling. So this is not safe. And there are a lot of uh, biases and stereotype uh, about people living in certain uh, neighborhood. So I can see the way you define uh, racism and what are the roots. And I can really connect that how racism operates in our day-to-day -day lives, in our employment, in our health sector and how it is affecting our mental health. 
our our overall well-being so thank you so much now uh, the question is how as social worker and community worker we can fight racism how what are the approaches we can take what are the actions we can take to fight racism now as uh, I, I should probably uh, state that as an african-american uh, from the united states obviously um, one of the ways that i found that was very helpful for african-americans uh, and you'll see this throughout the literature it, it includes social movements social movements have such great impact and, and i'm going to get to some of the other ways because i know that this is like the really sort of big sort of overarching um but social movements also can impact and change the internalization among racialized people like what is one of the most effective ways to change uh in terms of how one understands their own identity, where it's no longer superimposed it's through social movements. That's one way. But then also, as a profession, we also need to understand how racism impacts. Um, so, so we need to know the, some of the major impacts of racism and not sort of you know, reduce it to, well, it's just one microaggression, you know, toughen up. But to really understand how racism impacts communities. Um, I think we also need to understand uh, white supremacy as an ideology and as a culture and how that impacts us. But I would say for many social workers, working alongside community so that communities are in a position to, to not just address some of their own concerns, but to lead in what those concerns are. What we can do is share information in a way that we take the anti-racism framework and then actually look at what does it take to implement this in our work with communities because we would need to have community involvement and i would also say that many of the major changes that have taken place in policy you know a lot of it comes from the communities i mean they're very active and so we would also need to understand what is then our role as professionals. Are we coming in as professionals, which means are we coming in uh, as sort of the technical ex experts? Now, I get very concerned when we use that term expert or expertise because I don't have expertise or I'm not an expert on other people's lives. You know, I'm barely even an expert on mine, and I do some critical self-reflection all the time. Important <laughs> part. Thank you so much. And so I guess, you know, how do we combat racism? First of all, we do speak up when we see it. Yes. We do become allies, right? Because I, I need to also become allies with other BIPOC people, right? Uh, 
there's ways for us to to how can I say to look to each other for support um, and even if we're looking at policy we have to also recognize that policy is not separate from culture or worldview. So when we were speaking about the dualisms, uh, the hierarchy, you know, all of that comes into play with policymaking. So we would have to understand for, and I'll give an example, um, like in the United States after the civil rights movement, um, it was very clear with Dr. Martin Luther King that there be an, an affirmative action sort of um, uh, overarching framework in hiring those who have been excluded uh, and in particular African-Americans. And, and, and in the process of developing this sort of, you know, um, approach uh, and this philosophy and what it would look like in policy, um, members of the dominant group said, well, what about gender? And, and see, it's sort of like, what does that mean that, you know, that black women don't represent gender? or even that men don't represent gender, if we're talking about the historic exclusion. And so when women or gender was added, then the result of this policy, we're, we were then looking at nearly 80% of the beneficiaries of affirmative action in the United States. It actually consisted of white women. And so, again, the, the, the cultural worldview where it's separation, right? It's black or white. We don't know what to do. We don't have the language when you're both, right? We, we, we might say bye, but really we have difficulty conceptualizing it from a both and perspective. So why would anyone suggest that we include gender when gender is already included? Gender is, does not negate blackness and blackness does not negate gender. So when we're looking at policy, I, I just want us to have sort of like an understanding of how as an ideology as well, how whiteness is sort of favored and tends to, um, to dominate. And so just being aware of some of the cultural impacts and perspectives and how that uh, way in, even in our understanding of an anti-racism framework and approach. Wonderful, wonderful. and uh, the way you started that social movement is the key. And we can see some of the social movements like uh, Black Lives Matter, how it is organizing communities and putting resistance and also educating people yes. and, uh, and creating allyship uh, among the communities uh, to fight against uh, any kind of oppression racism so thank you so much dr boram for your time and sharing your important perspective on anti-racism i really enjoyed this conversation and i have learned a lot i'm sure our community members our students will enjoy this episode and once again thank you so much <laughs>